This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. As an Afghan, born in Afghanistan, but raised here in the U.S., I am deeply troubled by how often women's rights and children and girls are used as a ploy for the United States to get involved in a part of the world, but then there's no plan for how to actually support women and girls long-term. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. If your head is spinning at the lightning-fast Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, you're not alone. The Afghan military collapsed in just 11 days, allowing the Taliban to take Kabul in short order. The quick end to America's forever war may have long-term consequences, especially for Afghan women and girls. To analyze the situation, I spoke with Emily Harding, CSIS Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the International Security Program, and Lila Koestani, a former naval intelligence officer who served in Afghanistan and president and co-founder of Promote, a nonprofit that educates service members about the power and value of diverse and inclusive leadership. Emily and Lila, thanks so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Well, you both have backgrounds in intelligence, and I've read where there were warnings about the possibility that things might go south when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. But the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, said that there was nothing in the intel that he saw that made him think the Afghan military would collapse in 11 days. My question for the both of you to start out is, how is it that we were not better prepared was there too much or misplaced confidence in the Afghan military? Lila, I'll start with you. I believe that there were numerous ways for the senior leadership of the military, for policymakers, and for average citizens to see that the situation in Afghanistan was dire and fragile. If anyone had read any of the CIGAR reports, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, we could see from their assessments over the years that corruption was a huge problem in Afghanistan, that in fact there was infighting amongst the Afghan security forces, that people were hoarding fuel and, and supplies. And so it seems rather shocking to me to hear from the senior leadership of the Pentagon that they did not think that the Afghan forces would succumb to the pressure of fighting the insurgency on their own. And in fact, uh, just today, there was an article released by Doug London, who's uh, the CIA's former counterterrorism chief for the region. And he says very eloquently that Afghanistan was not an intelligence failure, that it was something much worse which ultimately he's saying, no, the intel community has been very forthcoming in its assessments about the fact that Afghanistan would succumb, the security forces would succumb to this pressure, but that in fact, senior leaders within the Department of Defense chose not to actually take heed. And I will also say as someone who spent years in the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer, as well as having worked at the Defense Intelligence Agency for years, we do know that even the intel community is often divided about its assessments. And unfortunately, what that leads to is certain people can latch on to the assessments that they want 
to see rather than an actual reckoning within the Intel community where we all agree that something is in fact a problem. Emily? All of that wholeheartedly agree with. I want to take a step back and discuss the way that Intel works as well for just a second. So an Intel report is never going to say this thing is going to happen on this date. The job of an intelligence analyst is to minimize uncertainty for the policymakers. So you may never say in 11 days, Kabul is going to fall because that's not really as helpful unless you're 100% right. What you're going to say is that we're following these factors. And if these factors go this way, then the collapse of the, the Afghan government could be very rapid in the course of a month or so. Or if these things don't happen, the collapse could be much slower. And that's where you see these six-month estimates or these 18-month estimates. The job of the intelligence analyst is to lay out what things might cause something to happen or not happen so you can track those things. They're called indications and warning. So in this case, we saw the intelligence community come out and say that things were going poorly, that the Taliban was on the advance. And then there are factors out there that could have made it much more rapid. Now, in the end, those factors happened. The collapse was really rapid. And there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy here where the Biden administration came out and said, we are leaving on this date certain. And that just led the Taliban to mark a date on their calendars. And this is when we're taking over. We're going to be ready for it. We're going to move quickly. It's very easy to blame the intelligence when policy goes horribly awry. Often the intelligence community can't defend themselves. So coming out, people coming out now, like this piece in Just Security this morning saying, no, no, this is not what an intelligence failure looks like, I think are really important to remind the American people about the role of intelligence and what is and is not possible. President Biden said when he addressed the nation earlier this week on Monday that American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. What happened to the Afghan forces? I mean, you touched on it a bit. Is it fair to say that they didn't fight back or are there other factors at play that caused them to surrender to the Taliban in short order? Emily, do you want to pick up on that? Sure. I think this is one of the most unfair criticisms that's out there right now. The brave men and women who were working with the United States government and were fighting with the Afghan National Security Forces, they had to make a very difficult choice in the end. They had to decide whether they were going to engage in what was close to a suicide mission by pushing back against an advancing Taliban force, or whether they were going to make deals where they could and try to survive. It's a terrible situation to be in. I think that over the past two decades, we have seen the will to fight. We have seen this desire to, to build a country. But when the people who've been fighting beside you have said, well, we're done here, we're leaving one way or another, you can understand why they would be reluctant to step up and face a foe that they thought that they couldn't defeat. And Lila, you alluded to this, you mentioned corruption. There are actually stories out there that for all the money that has been spent and pumped into Afghanistan, there were stories post-collapse that the Afghan military troops actually hadn't been paid in some time. That's absolutely right. And so I, I want to echo Emily's sentiment that I believe there are phenomenal Afghans who have stepped up over the years, who have been our partners, who have done a phenomenal job. I've worked primarily with special operations in the United States and, and out forward. And if their partners had not been great fighters, then why are so many of my special operations friends desperate to help their partners in Afghanistan. If those people had not been fierce warriors and 
had not made our Americans feel like they had a true partner in Afghanistan, then I don't believe so many of us would be working to support those people and help get them to safety. So the the will to fight, I believe, exists. But I will say that primarily, I think that will to fight really was inculcated in the forces that had great American partners. I do. And so on the special ops side, I'm so proud of what my folks accomplished, what my teammates accomplished. But when you look at the broader military in Afghanistan, there was a desire to very rapidly create forces that were not as well-trained as they should have been. They weren't vetted as well. And the corruption that I'm talking about really stems from the central government, frankly. Uh, This is a logistical nightmare. This is a logistical problem. We have Afghans who can barely read and write, and we are giving them Blackhawks, and we're giving them M4s when what they wanted was AK-47s and and Russian-made helicopters. So when people talk about all of the corruption and the money in Afghanistan, and in a way talking about the money being wasted, what I would say is actually that money went into a lot of Americans' pockets. There are a lot of American companies that are part of this military industrial complex that made a ton of money off of giving the Afghans a logistical pipeline that was completely unsustainable if we were not there. And that is what we're seeing today. Do you think that the American public is just not aware of this kind of detailed information about what really happened in Afghanistan that is causing a lot of the chatter that you hear about, oh, the Afghans aren't willing to fight for themselves? Absolutely. And I say this with a great deal of love to the U.S. There is no other country in my mind that can do what we do on a battlefield. Our ability to synchronize logistics, intel, operations, it is amazing and astounding what we are able to achieve. Most other countries can't do what we do. And then so to ask the Afghans to be able to do this without the the logistical train, without the advising, it's, it's near impossible. Afghanistan is an incredibly difficult place to traverse. The elements, the the terrain, it's actively trying to kill you truly in many parts of the country. And so the the Taliban has an advantage because they are from there, right? They're they're acclimatized. They understand how to get from every place that they need to every other place. And, And they force the Afghans to provide them with the logistics that they need, the food they need, the the early warnings that they need. For the Afghan security forces, the unfortunate piece of all of this is that I believe they do want to fight. I I believe that the majority of Afghans do not want to live under Taliban rule, but they do not feel like they have what they need in order to be able to keep on fighting. You cannot keep an army fighting if you cannot feed them. So we've been very concerned about the bullets and the guns and the aircraft. We haven't been thinking about how do we make sure these people are fed? How do we make sure that that these people are paid? Even for my US colleagues, we're patriots, we love our country and we fight. But if we didn't know that there was a logistics train that was gonna have our back, if we didn't know that we could call for fires when we're stuck somewhere, if we didn't know that our families were going to be taken care of if we died, I don't know how many of us would just keep on fighting. So this thought that the Afghans just have to keep fighting to the death, I agree with Emily. They're making a very difficult choice, and what they're choosing to do is to survive. 
that is an amazing point that I'm glad that you made that I want people to hear. Let me shift a bit and ask about our adversaries or frenemies, as some might say, China and Russia, and where they fit into all of this, because I've read where China's just waiting for the U.S. to leave so that it can go in and access all of the rare earth minerals that are plentiful in Afghanistan and take advantage of the economic opportunities that may come with the U.S. not in the picture. Emily, how concerned should the U.S. be about that possibility? We should definitely be concerned about it. We already see Russia and China moving in to fill this void. Uh, One of the top Taliban leaders went to Beijing and uh, met with some Chinese leaders right before this big offensive push began. That, to me, was a signal to the world that China was perfectly willing to allow this takeover to happen and was going to work with the Taliban. And Beijing has shown no compunction around the world in making deals with some of the worst of the worst if it suits their interests and furthers the One Belt, One Road initiative. And the Russians, I mean, they have to be feeling a certain amount of schadenfreude here. Uh, we, we pushed them out of Afghanistan once, and, and now they're seeing us leave like this. Uh, we've already seen them as well say that they're willing to deal with the Taliban, that they see this as a big black eye on the, the great power of the United States, and I'm sure they're absolutely gleeful about that. I'm actually old enough to remember seeing the news and seeing the Soviet departure from Afghanistan. Deja vu. Yeah, but deja vu all over again. How do these events that have unfolded so quickly impact our allies? Because the other chatter that you hear if you watch international news organizations is that our allies are none too pleased with us and make it difficult for them to believe that America is, quote unquote, back on the global stage. I think that's absolutely right. We are seeing some folks making quiet phone calls from places like South Korea, Japan, some of the the nations that are around China and Europe as well, saying, you guys knew that this was a possibility. You knew this could be a disaster if you left, and then you left anyway. What does that mean for, for us and our alliance? I've seen folks in the administration pushing back pretty hard on that and saying that, you know, we had no desire to keep fighting what they're calling the forever war in Afghanistan and that our decision to leave was a very calculated one. And that's not the kind of thing that we would do in Europe or in the nations surrounding China. But actions speak louder than words. And I understand why allies are feeling a little bit of whiplash when the Biden administration came in and said, America's back, we believe in alliances, and then we pulled out of Afghanistan like this. I think if if I were Tony Blinken, if I were at the State Department, I'd be spending a lot of time sitting down with allies and talking through the way they made this decision to pull out of Afghanistan and try to reassure folks that this is not the kind of thing that's going to signal an American retreat across the world. But boy, that is a challenging conversation to have if you're a diplomat sitting overseas. We're going to need to demonstrate, I think, with a continued commitment to pull our allies and partners out of Afghanistan on the ground if we're going to make that that kind of diplomatic push credible. And I want to pick up on that, pulling people out of Afghanistan, those who've helped us, because there are desperate and heartbreaking images in the news of people frantically trying to escape that country, in particular the people who did stick their necks out and help the United States. I can't get the picture of that plane taking off and people literally falling from the sky trying to hang on. I can't get that out of my mind. Before we go on to that, keep that in mind. But Lila, I want to let you jump in on the point about allies. Yeah, so I definitely agree with what Emily said. I, I think if you're if you're Taiwan right now and you're seeing 
our actions in Afghanistan. This is a phenomenal opportunity for the Chinese to signal to uh, to Taiwan that America is not really going to be with you long term. If we're looking at our Eastern European allies that are worried about Russian encroachment, I think it's a it's a wonderful time for the Russians to signal to those countries that they can't really depend on the United States. And you all talked a little bit about the Russians and, and our conflict there against um, the Red Scare back in the 1980s. I do want to say that I find oftentimes there is this binary conversation about Afghanistan that tends to lead towards the CT, the counterterrorism fight in Afghanistan. We did what we needed to do, and so we can go ahead and leave. I do believe that we did a fantastic job on the counterterrorism front because we have not seen a direct threat to the homeland coming out of this region of the world. But to look at Afghanistan as only a counterterrorism issue is wrong. That if the national defense strategy, if the national security strategy is focused on great power competition, Afghanistan literally sits in the middle of all of our rivals, Russia, China, Iran. And so how can we in good conscience say we should leave Afghanistan behind if we care so deeply about great great power competition? We fought our great power, the Soviet Union, in the 1980s to keep them from getting a foothold in Afghanistan and throughout the Muslim world. And essentially, we're just giving that back to them today. When you've got the Russian ambassador to Afghanistan saying that Kabul is safer now under the Taliban, a group that they have officially designated as a terrorist organization in Russia, you know that the great power competition is back on from the viewpoint of the Russians and the Chinese in terms of Afghanistan. That is a, a huge psychological operations boon for them. You couldn't see it, Bev, but I was groaning miserably when I heard Lila say that about the Russians. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. <laughs> I don't disagree with either one of you. It is absolutely horrible. It is absolutely horrible. But I do want to turn to the the images of people in desperate in, in desperation efforts to try to get out of Afghanistan, particularly those who have helped us. Two questions. One, what are the implications of the U.S., of the growing view that, you know, we're leaving behind all the people who helped us? And Lila, you touched on this about the message it may send to Taiwan and to our partners in Eastern Europe. How do we fix that? Can we fix that? Or are we too far down the rabbit hole? Have people seen what they've seen and they believe that rather than what we're ever going to say after seeing what they've seen on the news? And two, what actually needs to happen with the evacuation effort that is now underway? We talk about being great at logistics. It seems like this is a logistical issue that we should be able to solve. On the piece of logistics, it is a huge logistical challenge to get thousands and thousands of people out of a contested area and to a safe place. What's making this logistical challenge even more difficult is that the people we're trying to evacuate from the country can't even get themselves to the airport. And if they make it to the airport, there's not a clear route from the streets outside the airport onto the tarmac where they can actually safely get on a plane that's leaving. So one thing that we're going to have to really make a difficult decision on in the coming weeks is just how aggressive the U.S. military is willing to be 
in the perimeter of the airport and in fact outside the airport. The choice is to have some difficult discussions with the Taliban and try to get assurances from them that they're going to open checkpoints and let people walk through them to get to the airport, or for the U.S. military to say, we're going to forcefully set up our own checkpoints. And each one of those could turn into a flashpoint for a conflict. I asked one of my my friends who's active duty Marines the other day whether or not she knew the, the rules of engagement at the airport for our folks who were there. I can't even imagine the impossible decisions for each one of those soldiers holding a weapon. I mean, they're going to be on edge looking at desperate crowds of people trying to trying to get out of the country. I think it's just going to be an exceptionally challenging lift for the U.S. military. So far, I mean, they have done such an admirable job. I think uh, Secretary Austin the other day was was commending commending them in their efforts to keep American assets safe and also to try to keep as many Afghan citizens safe as possible. But it's, I mean, it's just a desperate situation. I have the great fortune of being a member of the Afghan American Coalition, and they recently released a a call to action for the U.S. government to assist with Afghanistan. And Fundamentally, I believe that we need to leverage our U.S. influence to secure the airport in Kabul and supply additional government-run evacuation flights for the Afghans. We have numerous individuals and organizations that are working on private charters. And while that is incredibly commendable, and I am working with one in particular, very proud to be supporting their efforts to get women and children also out of Afghanistan, because while I'm incredibly grateful to our interpreters, the majority of our interpreters are, of course, men, because we could not employ very many women in Afghanistan due to cultural restrictions. So I've been really heartened to see that there are private citizens and members of the special forces community that are looking to go back into Afghanistan using private charters to be able to evacuate women and children as as well as their interpreters. We also need the government, the U.S. government, to run more evacuation flights out of Afghanistan. We have C-17s, we have planes all over Europe, in the Middle East, that could be coming in and taking on as many people as possible and getting them out before the 31st of August. We need to broaden eligibility and remove unnecessary barriers to meet these incredibly strict requirements for the various visa programs that have significantly delayed the approval process. We need to create a special humanitarian parole program to meet this urgent need. Of course, we need more diplomatic channels to urge our allies to drop their visa requirements. We need to support e-visas to various other parts of the world. And ultimately, we need every U.S. citizen to call their congressperson, their senator, and ask for the U.S. to remain accountable in this endeavor, that we did promise people that we would support them, that we would help them, that we would make sure that they were well taken care of, and and we we need to honor that promise. Yeah. Bev, if I could jump in there, too. Uh, I've seen some really impressive statistics about 20 C-17 flights in the last 24 hours, each one carrying several hundred people. And then we have to remember, too, is that each one of those C-17s has a logistics tail, as we were discussing earlier, that's very long. So along with the C-17s coming in and out, there's refueling, there's maintenance, there's all the forces that go along with that. And so it, it is a really impressive logistical lift. One thing that we definitely need to be doing, the the requirements for filling out visa applications are extensive and absurd if you think about them in the context of 
a family that's fleeing for their life, that's grabbing their kids and running out the door. I mean, you're not necessarily going to have an extensive portfolio of paperwork that you would need to fill out these visa applications. One thing that we have attempted to do and I think are not doing enough of is to just get people out and then sort the paperwork out later. They've been moved to a couple um, military facilities where they can wait and try to sort through the paperwork details, put them on an aircraft carrier, put them in a third country, you know, wherever you can get them out of the country and then sort out the details. That's what we should be doing. I've also been really encouraged to see that a few governors and local leaders have written, you know, letters to the president. The governor of Colorado did one, I think, just yesterday where they've said, our state is willing to accept as many refugees as you can bring us. We owe these people our gratitude. We owe them, in many cases, our lives. And we are thrilled to have them as as the newest Americans. And that's really heartening to me. The governor of Utah also did one of those letters. You both talked about the plight of women and girls, and I want to turn the conversation to that right now. I can't imagine if I were a woman in Afghanistan feeling what they must be feeling after 20 years of being educated, becoming doctors and scientists and, you know, computer experts, and the list goes on and on and on. These women have been educated, but they also know the history of the of the Taliban. And the Taliban is saying that it's going to be different this time, that women will have rights as allowed by Islamic law. And I should put an asterisk saying their interpretation of Islamic law. What else can we as the United States do to make sure the women and girls get out of Afghanistan? Absolutely. I I would like for us to, one, actually hold the Taliban accountable for what it is that they agree to in, um, in the peace process. As I understand it, we were we're told we were promised that uh, women's rights would not would not be rolled back as part of this peace process. There were Afghan women that were involved in the process uh, as well. We need to hold the Taliban accountable to that. So if one side of the of the agreement is not holding up what they promised, then we need to very seriously consider doing something to incentivize the Taliban to behave accordingly. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not going to say that I know exactly what that is. I don't know if that's going to be through diplomatic pressure. I don't know if that's going to be through regional allies. I don't know if that means a, a military intervention. Uh, but as an Afghan girl myself, uh, who was almost married off at the age of 12, by my father, when I hear about the Taliban going door to door and forcing young girls at the age of 12 to become war brides, I am sickened to my stomach. And I know that Afghan women and Afghan girls feel betrayed. We absolutely need to be supporting any efforts that we can to make sure that they get out of the country. I do not believe the Taliban when they say that life will be better for Afghan women. I think they're doing a fantastic job with their influencing campaign uh, to say during their press conference, essentially, come see the the softer side of the Taliban. I do not believe them. I believe that women and girls are in for a very, very dark fate. So we need to support getting them out. We need to support our allies that are trying to get them out. As I understand it, the Afghan girls robotics team is trying to get to Canada. That's been all over the news. Um, there were Afghan girls that won the international astrophysics competition. These, these are people that will further humanity. If the future of humanity is in STEM, these are the people that we need to make sure are, are going to be alive and flourish. We need to make sure that every single Afghan girl and Afghan boy has the opportunity to thrive. And so 
any organization that is that is also working to get Afghan women and girls as well as interpreters out, we need to be supporting right now. Yeah. <laughs> everything that Lila said and more. Um, this morning I, I got up and I was flipping through the news and reading the, the article in Just Security and, and listening to one of my other colleagues talk about how he anticipates that 30 days from now when some of the media attention has faded is when the, the Taliban are going to really show their true colors. And I packed up my daughter and I sent her to camp where she is working on building her own model rockets I put on a suit and I got ready to go to work. And I thought about just how lucky I was that those two things could happen without me even really think about them. That's just normal. And I am deeply concerned about all of the Afghan women and girls who have been professionals, who have been allowed to go to school and suddenly must feel like they've had the rug ripped out from under them. I mean, talk about an uncertain future, not knowing if you'll be able to continue to pursue your studies and pursue your passions and not even knowing whether or not you're going to be allowed to operate as an independent member of society. That, that is just an astonishing place to be for so many people who, as Lila said, are, are vital to the future of, of this country and, in fact, the planet. I'm still haunted by the video I saw online of a woman who was elected to be a provincial mayor in Afghanistan saying that she was literally waiting for the Taliban to come after her. I can't imagine living like that. And my question for you both, again, it goes back to logistics. If women are scared to leave their houses to try to get to the Kabul airport now that the Taliban is in control, how on earth are we going to get them out? And why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about, hey, we need to make sure the women and girls are on the planes that are leaving the country? Because we're in crisis mode and there was no planning for this moment, clearly. So everyone is incredibly focused on helping their interpreters, the people that they worked with. And again, I understand that. I understand the bond that occurs when you're working with someone day in and day out in a war zone. Uh, but we, we did not have a plan for this. We did not have a plan for how do we make sure that women and children who are, frankly, in the long term, the most vulnerable population in Afghanistan. Because even for the men that stay, if they can't make it out, Yes, of course they will be targeted, and I hope that they make it to safety somewhere, but they do have the ability to actually move through the country in a way that the women do not anymore. And so I also very frankly wonder, where is the Muslim world in all of this? This is not a problem that the U.S. alone needs to solve or that our Western allies need to solve. As a Muslim, I am ashamed of our Muslim counterparts. Where is the UAE? Where is Jordan? They have the ability to go into Afghanistan as Muslims and act as advisors in this situation. They can go door to door and help these women. They can be that male escort to help get these women from one place to another to safety. So where are they in this moment? Amen that the Jordans and the UAEs of the world should definitely be stepping up and, and helping out here. So I think that Ambassador Khalilzad, as much amazing work as he has done, and members of the Biden administration, that they have been lulled into a bit of a false sense of security here. The Trump administration before them, and, and this group as well, have been sitting across a table from the Taliban who's been on their best behavior and been saying perhaps all the right things. I think that they're saying what they're saying now about trying to increase pressure on the Taliban and hold them accountable because they don't have much else to say 
But the honest truth is that we just don't have many levers that we can pull here. The Taliban is not looking for the U.S. approval to do much of anything, and it looks like the Russians and the Chinese aren't going to hold them accountable either. And what I think is going to be really interesting, this same group of policymakers that are in the Biden administration were in the Obama administration during the ISIS takeover of Iraq. And part of the reason that we, the United States, got involved in that conflict was because there was an imminent genocide about to happen in Sinjar with the Yazidis, and especially the plight of Yazidi women and girls. And I will not be at all surprised if some very similar images start showing up in Afghanistan in the next month, two months, three months. And then will the same group of policymakers make a different decision than they made in Iraq? Or will they once again decide that, no, the United States has to get involved? Lila? As an Afghan, born in Afghanistan, but raised here in the U.S., I am deeply troubled by how often women's rights and children and girls are used as a ploy for the United States to get involved in a part of the world, but then there's no plan for how to actually support women and girls long-term. So in Afghanistan, yes, images of an Afghan woman in a burqa being shot in a stadium resulted in an outcry from the international community. And we have for years been talking about the gains that have been made in Afghanistan for women and girls, and yet we have had no plan in place to make sure that those women and girls would be taken care of long-term. We trained almost entirely Afghan men. We have had mostly men from various countries' militaries in Afghanistan. They have created really strong bonds with other Afghan men, and there have been almost no organizations dedicated to how do we ensure that the women of Afghanistan have a political and military voice long-term. I'm proud of what we've done to educate Afghan women, I am, and girls, but education is not enough. How come we didn't train more Afghan women? And if the, and if the answer is, well, because there are cultural restrictions, there are women right now that are taking up arms. We've seen them in the streets. They're saying, I don't want to leave Afghanistan. Look at Mahbuba Siraj of the Afghan Women's Network. Look at Fauzia Kufi. These people are saying, I am going to stay here and keep on fighting. We needed to find more of those women. Those are the people that we should have helped become part of the political process so that they could have made sure that their government didn't sell them out and making sure that the U.S. was held accountable for the promises that it made to those Afghan women, to those Afghan girls. Lila, you answered the question that I was originally going to ask, which was as someone born in Afghanistan who is an Afghan-American, what's it like to watch what's happening there? But you answered that question so eloquently. Thank you so much, Emily Harding. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks, Bev. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.